Hey, and welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. We are a church that is for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are passionate about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we would love for you to check out our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. There you can find ways to connect with us and see what's happening at Crosspoint. Now, let's listen to this week's Sunday message. in Eden, where humanity was united with the divine. That was until a dark power schemed and devised a plan to separate us from God, to divide. The devil called humanity to cross the dividing wall and join his hostility on our new ruler's side. But ever since then, God has been working to reunite his people, one family at a time. It started with Abraham. God separated him from the ruler's side. Through the Jews, all people would unite. And all throughout biblical history, God was working out this mystery of how he would end hostility toward the divine through this one family. That is the message Paul wrote from prison to the Ephesians, which was desperately needed. So the message of this book that we are about to study has caused riots in a city disrupted an economy, put people out of business, has penetrated spiritual darkness, and has gained the attention of demons. At the same time, this message has brought people spiritual freedom from bondage, has brought healing and wholeness and power, and has reached across dividing social lines, bringing enemies into a new spiritual family sent on Jesus' mission to redeem the world. This is the book of Ephesians. This is the gospel of peace. So in a world that is full of division and brokenness and destructive ideas, what would it look like for us to live as a contrastive community fueled by the transformative power of the gospel? And so this morning we're starting this new series in the book of Ephesians, which we've titled, United in God's Redemptive Mission. And so before we actually understand the weight of this message for us today, we need to take a little bit of time this morning to understand the context of the letter, what Paul was writing uh, about, what he was writing to. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to take a moment to pray before we dive into the word this morning. Jesus, we come before you and we recognize um, the brokenness, division within our world, and the need for this world to be changed and transformed. And so, Jesus, we come before you, uh, opening up your word, asking as your people that you would speak to us today. Give us ears to hear in your name. Amen. 
So picking up in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning, we find that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. If you don't know who Paul was, he was uh, a Jewish Pharisee who studied the law. He studied under the greatest, one of the greatest Jewish rabbis of his time. But he had a fear of this new movement, this new Jewish sect called you know, Christians. And so he began by persecuting the Christians until his life was drastically transformed when he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And from that point on, his entire life mission changed. In fact, he went on multiple mission journeys throughout Asia Minor, sharing the good news even in the face of opposition. And so Paul is writing this letter uh, from prison, from sharing the gospel it's likely written near the end of his life, around 62 A.D., before he was killed the following year in 63 A.D. And so he's sitting in Rome, house arrest, under chains, and he's reflecting back on an entire life of thinking through the good news of Jesus. And he's writing it to this church in Ephesus, though it likely would have been circulated uh, to more places in Asia Minor. But he says, you know, what is the full gospel what is the good news? How can I encourage this community? And this is, he pens this light, uh, letter of Ephesians. And as we've mentioned, this, this letter is written to, likely to a church in Ephesus. And this city was uh, quite impactful. In fact, uh, we have a bit of a, a show of where it is on the map. It was Oh, that's a little bit small. But <laughs> it was a, a port city near the water, so it had a, a really good economy, a trade city that through the water also connected to the Silk Road, which brought things from Asia. And so there was lots of uh, artisans, craft people, workers. It had a good economy. It had you know, lots of incredible buildings. And this city was also, in many ways, very religious. They worship many different gods from the Greek and Roman pantheon. But the main god in this city, the goddess was named Artemis. And she was the goddess of fertility, magic, and astrology. In fact, there was a temple of this goddess in the city, which was considered one of the seven most ancient wonders of the world. That this goddess really shaped the idea of this city. And there was this idea that, you know, if we could kind of please the gods then we would receive blessing. If we could do the right offerings, the right sacrifices, then this goddess would allow us to be fertile, to have kids, to have successful crops and businesses. And so this was a lot of the mindset of people within this culture. And to get an understanding of Paul's interaction in Ephesus, we have to look at Acts 19. And so in Acts 19, it talks about Paul's ministry here, and it was nothing less than eventful. It begins by him going to the synagogue and preaching about the kingdom of God. And as a result, is that there's this kind of split within the synagogue, that some people were really upset that Paul is saying, here are these Jews, these people on, uh, these Jews that are called God's chosen people. 
that they're actually to invite the Gentiles in, to be broaden the boundaries of what it means to be people of God. And so there's a split in this synagogue. And so what happens is that Paul goes to this hall of Tyrannus, where all these philosophers are there speaking about these different ideas. And he presents the gospel in this arena of ideas. We also find is that Paul sees a spiritual awakening within Ephesus. That his ministry becomes so successful that people took their magic books and actually brought them together and burned them. That the worship of Artemis became less and less. But this effect, this disruption was not only a spiritual disruption, but actually started to disrupt the economy. That there are many artisans in this area that would would build, uh, would make idols that people would purchase and then use in their homes. And all of a sudden, they're going out of business because people are not buying these idols because they're burning their magic books as this change. And what happens is you have this huge riot that takes place within this amphitheater as people are getting so excited and they start chanting Artemis and just chanting and chanting. And Paul, the the crazy man that he is, says, all right, let, send me in. I want to go preach to them. And his friends are like, dude, you can't, you can't do that. Like, they're going to kill you. As the expression goes, he was ready to, to charge hell with a water pistol. <laughs> but I thought, you know, what would it look like for this disruption of Paul if it were in Edmonton? And I thought about it a little bit. So just play with me. I'm not saying this is happening. But let's say someone like me, who just so happens to be a Canucks fan, comes to Edmonton, and I start going, you know, I start going to Ice District. I start going to the Parliament buildings, and I start telling all these people, you know, the, the team that you worship, the Savior that you look to, is not the right one. And let's say, for, for example, this, this becomes so successful that the people in Edmonton begin to have a change of heart that they, they kind of come together and they, they bring their McDavid jerseys <laughs> and they start burning them. <laughs> and it becomes so disruptive that, that all of a sudden the, the home games are not sold out, that there's so many empty spaces. And you could just see that there would be a riot <laughs> that would break out. This is the level of disruption that Paul had in the city of Ephesus. This is why the gospel is so disruptive, because it permeates not only the spiritual, social, but also the economic fabric of culture. But before we dive into what the good news is, we have to understand what is the problem or the issue. Because we look out into our world and we can see brokenness. We can see division among families, division along political lines. Uh, and we can feel that within our own lives, this desire to, to break free from habits that are leading not to life. And so this is what Paul says is wrong with our world, is this combination of what uh, church historians talk about is the three enemies of the soul. You know, the, the devil, the flesh, and the world. So the devil in scripture is talked about as the father of lies. In Ephesians 4:14 4, Paul says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so the idea that the devil puts these deceptive ideas that we see in our culture, there's these half-truths or these lies, but all of a sudden these lies become embodied in our lives. And it feeds into what is called our deceptive, or yeah, our misplaced desires. That Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupted through deceitful desires. So we have these deceptive ideas that are fed to deceitful desires that actually become institutionalized within our culture. And this is what Paul talks about in the idea of powers and principalities. And I know for many of us in modern world, the idea of you know, a demon behind these kind of institutions feels weird or foreign or archaic. But we do feel it in a sense, where you look at different things that happen in the culture, and you say, you know what, that, there's something that's very evil there. There's something that's not right that shouldn't be there. And so what Paul says is that there's these authorities behind that. And he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So that's not to say that each individual institution in and of itself is categorically demonic, but that there are these forces behind that kind of reality that are at work in our culture. And we see this cycle happening where these uh, institutions and cultures start to feed deceptive ideas that all of a sudden feed to our broken desires. And we get caught in this cycle. And so what we actually need is to be disrupted. We need to break in, broken free of this cycle within our lives and our culture. That we actually need the truth of God to speak to our hearts, to reorder our desires so that we can actually live out as, in some ways, the institution of the church, the people of God, continuing to point people back to the truth of the gospel. And so here's the good news of the book of Ephesians, a nice overarching view of the gospel that transforms. In Ephesians 1, we find in the midst of our broken world, God has a plan before the foundation of the world to unite all things in heaven, on earth, in Jesus. And which means that we have been chosen, we have been adopted, and we are redeemed in Jesus. In Ephesians 2, we find this message extends to us. That while we were alienated from God and distant from God, that through Jesus we are reconciled to God, that we are brought into this sense of peace with God, that we are first united with God. But Ephesians 3 says, you know, it's not only that vertical relationship with God, but the gospel actually transforms our horizontal relationship with one another. And Paul says the mystery of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles are now part of this new family of God, this new humanity, and part of God's redemptive mission. And so chapters 1 to 3 is kind of the idea of the foundation of the gospel. And chapters 4 to 6 become how does the gospel function within our lives and within our world? And so chapter 4, it talks about what does this community look like? Having different roles of people for the idea of equipping one another. This becomes a community that does not gossip, but rather speaks the truth in love. <clears throat> and then we see in Ephesians 5, 
there's this idea of what it looks like to walk in love. How does the gospel transform the way that we approach marriage, family, ideas of submission and authority? And Ephesians 6, we finally look that our mission is, is not a battle against flesh and blood or to win a culture war, but it's recognizing that there's a, the principalities, this kind of spiritual reality, and we're called to put on the armor of God. It's actually this idea of stepping into the gospel, that the, the idea is that we actually wear the good news and bring it into our world in everyday life. This is the message of the book of Ephesians. New Testament scholar Michael Gorman sums it up this way. He says, thus, the mission of God and of Paul and the Ephesians and all Christians is to bring people from the realm of sin, death, and alienation governed by anti-God powers into the realm of forgiveness, resurrection life, and peace ruled by Jesus, the Messiah, and Lord. And this is why we've chosen this book for us as a community to study. To recognize that we are united to God through the work of Jesus, which actually brings us into relationship with one another. That is, we look at the differences that we have, that we are actually united as God's redemptive people. And just as God has rescued us, we get to join in in his redemptive work to rescue the world. That we have actually been been called together for the purpose of being on mission in our world and in our neighborhoods. And so with all that kind of groundwork being laid, we're going to dive into the first few verses of this book. And so what we come in contact with here is Paul starts to write, and from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is actually in, in the Greek is one single sentence. You could just see the excitement of Paul as he's writing this that just jumps off the page. That it's, you know, when you've seen something so excited, you start texting someone, and then all of a sudden you stop, you look at your text, and it's like, like oh, sorry, send. <laughs> this is Paul. He's just, he's, he's gone off. In fact, one uh, Greek scholar who, who spends his life studying Greek, he says, this is the most monstrosus sentence conglomerate I've ever met in the entire Greek language. <laughs> Paul is excited to say the least. But he's excited because of what we have in Christ. There are many uh, sermons that end in very clear action, but this, the idea is for us to actually recognize the truth of the gospel. Before we move to action, we need to let the goodness of the gospel settle within our hearts. And so Paul says that you are to be in Christ. It's this uh, uh, it's this metaphor that describes a relational reality. What does it look like for us to be in relationship with Jesus as a community? And so we're going to look at four things from this passage to see what it means to be in Christ. First, to be in Christ means that we have been chosen. In verse 3, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
that we have been chosen. And I love how this message, it begins with this idea of blessing. That often in our world we think, you know, if, if I can do enough good things, I could be worthy of being considered blessed. And here, Paul flips the script. He says, as we bless God, which is the idea of praising God, we become blessed in that process. That we are called to be, uh, a, we are blessed to be a blessing. And this really comes back from God's plan that began uh, first in the garden, but also with the calling of Abraham, as we, we saw in that bumper. That in the midst of, of the world and the time that was in hostility, that was in division, God calls this person, Abraham, to begin his redemptive mission. Then in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, he said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chose Abraham to start this new family, this new nation of Israel. And the purpose was that he chose this nation out of the world so that he might bless them so that they could be a blessing. But we know if you are to try to see something grow that is beautiful, you need to protect it so that there can be life that can grow. And this is part of the reason that God gave Israel the law. Leslie Newbegin, who's a, a missionary, uh, he talks about it this way. He says, Israel was the Lord's garden, a small oasis of cleanliness and beauty in the midst of a world which is a desert of idolatry and chaos of wickedness. And the hedge which protected this garden was the law. So the point of the law, which we see throughout all of Scripture, talks about this idea of the cleanliness of Israel. It was to protect what was life-giving so that it could be something that could give life to this world that was a desert of idolatry. But what happened is that people became far more concerned about the hedge than the oasis. And Israel began to look more and more like the nations around them. And so God, um, through the work of Jesus, redeems them. But he also, what, he's, what he does is he expands that boundary. And he says, now Israel is there, but also the Gentiles will be included within this. And that we get, as most of us can, are likely Gentiles in this room, get to be considered as part of the people of God. That we've been chosen in this way to be a blessing. And a way that I think is helpful to illustrate this is the way that Christianity moved to the island of Ireland. Uh, in the 5th and 6th centuries, Ireland was very uh, barbaric, run by different tribes, very spiritual culture. And we see the early Christians, when they went there, people like St. Patrick that we hear of, is that they had a strategy. And their strategy was to go into this island, and it was to plant monasteries. And so these ma uh, monastic communities did just include monks, but they include farmers, craftspeople, tradespeople, but they actually set up these spiritual communities. And the idea was that 
for people that were walking through the island that were travelers, that they would actually invite them to be a part of their community, to, to bring them in, to share meals with them, to invite them into the spiritual life of their community. And it was through this hospitality, this contrastive community, that Ireland became Christianized, that Ireland beca- uh, had the gospel come to them. And it's this beautiful picture of what would it look like for us to be a community of hospitality that would invite other people to receive the blessing of God through the ways that we live within our world and our family, within our small groups and our church community. So in Christ, we have been chosen. Picking up in verse 4, this second component is that in Christ, we've been predestined for adoption. Paul continues, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so here we come across this idea of predestination. And if you ever want to get you know, Christian, especially college students going, you just throw the word predestination and watch them fight it out. <laughs> Throughout all of church history, there's been, you know, different debates whether it is God's in his sovereignty, has he completely chosen us as a complete act of his grace? Or do we have the option to choose God? And so how does our free will and God's sovereignty work together? And we're not going to solve that issue this morning. But there is some things that are worth considering in this text. When it comes to this idea of predestination or to be predetermined, it's, all, it's in the context of being in Christ. That Jesus himself was the chosen one. That before the foundations of the world, when, when, there was, uh, when God knew that sin was going to enter the world, he chose Jesus to, um, to enter human history to be the perfect human, to be the perfect Israelite, and that he is the chosen one. And so when we are in Christ, we have been predetermined to be chosen in him for adoption. The other thing to recognize is that to be pre, uh, predestination in this context is actually not so much about individuals, but it's actually about a corporate identity. That us as a people have been chosen by God. That we've been chosen as part of this to be adopted. And as we mentioned, the, the other part is that this is actually about love. That God is determined before all of creation. That when he looked at our lives and he knew that we would break relationship, that we would do things that would hurt him. Even in the midst of that, he chose for Jesus to come to the world, to die the death that we deserved. Because you are worth that cost to him. And that we actually get this new identity, that we are adopted. That maybe you feel isolated on the outskirts, but we have been chosen and we have been adopted. That when you, you know, for example, in in middle school and there's this, this line of people waiting to get chosen for a team. And what does God do? He doesn't always choose, you know, the best But he looks at the people that are broken, the people on the ends, the people that no one would choose. And he says, I've chosen you. You are a part of this team. 
you are part of this new spiritual family. And so we have been predestined for adoption to become part of God's family. Third, in Christ, we have redemption. Uh, this, uh, so picking up in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That in ancient times, this idea of redemption is this idea of being bought out of slavery. That as we've mentioned, we are, we are trapped in this cycle, alienated from God. Then Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the princes of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But he goes on in verses uh, 4 and following. He says, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, may, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That through the blood of Jesus being poured out, that we have new life. That we have been bought out of that cycle of shame and guilt and brokenness and sin and given into this new life through Jesus. And it's done in relation to God's grace, which is undeserved favor that he has lavished upon us. So God's grace, as I like to say, is uh, emotionally motivated, but intellectually calculated. Uh, an example of this is... Uh, uh, for my wife and I, when we were looking to buy a house, I quickly learned that we approach things very differently. When it came to it, my wife, she was, you know, think, can I see a future family there? Can I see, you know, us hosting these things? Can I see this? And she's very, you know, driven by this, this longing to see what it would look like. You know, can I call this place home? I like walking the door with a mortgage calculator. <laughs> like, can we make this work? Is this going to, you know... Can I put a basement suite in? How long is it going to take to pay off? And I didn't even need to see the house. I just need to see the numbers. <laughs> but when it comes to God's grace, it's emotionally motivated, but intellectually calculated. That God is not just some, some person that's you know, drawn by these random emotions, but he's thought it through. That he's thought before the beginning of the world, this plan to bring these things. Yet he's not cold, walking in with a calculator to see if we earned his love. That it says he lavishes it upon us. It's, you know, this, the idea of Thanksgiving dinner and someone just having too much gravy and just keep it going. Just lavishes upon us. Not holding back. This is the grace of God for us. And finally, as we draw to a conclusion... That in Christ we find that the mystery of God is revealed. In verse 9, Paul says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven 
and earth. The climax of the gospel, of God's plan before the foundation, was to unite all things in Jesus. To unite things on the spiritual realm, to unite things in our physical world. That in fact, if you read the entire book of the Bible, that it climaxes in the end of this idea of the new heavens and new earth breaking in. That it says there's no need for sun because the light of Jesus provides life for that whole space. And that we are brought into this beautiful reality of, this, of the future people of God. That it says there's people from all different tribes and tongues worshiping Jesus. That we are all united together through the redemptive work of Jesus. That in Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when we look at the brokenness of our world, when we look at the divisions within our culture, when we look at you know just the evil that can that can just be present in the news but we also look at the brokenness within our own lives the divisions in our families divorce those family members that won't talk to us that attempt that we have to try and break those sinful habits those patterns that don't lead to life and here we have the assurance of the gospel of the good news of Jesus before the foundations of the world, God has a plan to unite all things in Jesus. That Jesus is the head of all things. That he's come to actually redeem and to renew the world. So what would it look like for us to be a future people of God living in the present? What would it look like for us to be people of reconciliation in a world that is full of division and brokenness? What would it look like for us to bring life to people that are hurting and broken? What would it look like for us to open up our, our homes and our tables to people that don't have family? What would it look like for us to invite people in to experience the goodness of the gospel? This is what the book of Ephesians is drawing us into. This is what it looks like for us to be a community that's united in God's redemptive mission in the world. So as we end, I just want to end by, uh, again, reiterating our benediction for us this morning. You are the people of God, called by God, into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are. We encourage you to uh, strike up a conversation with someone that doesn't look like you to open that social circle. Uh, and because we have had the grace of finishing early, I encourage you not to rush down to pick up your kids as they may still be continuing their time of discipleship. Uh, but take a chance to get to, to know people. We also have prayer available here on the side if you would like that. Thank you for joining us this morning. I will see you again, same time, same place.
Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to this Sunday's message. We hope that we've helped you in your spiritual journey and that you're drawing closer to God. At Crosspoint, we gather on Sundays at 10 a.m. in Northeast Edmonton and throughout the week in something we love to call home groups. Home groups are encouraging and transformational communities for people just like you. We believe that the journey of faith is done together. So we hope that you'll connect with us at thecrosspointchurch.ca. Now, let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are.